You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 6th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... We have been pretty clear that Rafa is an important conduit for the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. It is an important conduit for foreign nationals, including American citizens and LPRs, to be able to safely leave Gaza. It is also somewhere where more than a million people uh, are sheltering. The humanitarian crisis continues in Gaza as Antony Blinken returns to the Middle East again, this time to push for another ceasefire. We'll examine whether it'll be fifth time lucky. Also ahead, the hardline right-wingers in the UK's Conservative Party rebrand themselves as Popcon, choosing as their figurehead Liz Truss, the Prime Minister who crashed the British economy. Plus... In our first event, we had two special guests. We had Brazilian actor, renowned Brazilian actor Nelson Freitas, and we had Mr. Viking Ragnar Rothbrook himself, Travis Fimmel. The head of the Australia-Brazil Chamber of Commerce tells us why, in order to make their mark, they go to Copenhagen. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. to look at what else is happening in today's news. World leaders have expressed their support for the UK's King Charles after his cancer diagnosis. Another cargo ship has been damaged in an attack by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea and three people have died after a powerful storm caused flooding and power cuts in California. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, the US Secretary of State has begun his latest trip to the Middle East, his fifth visit to the region since Hamas launched its attack on Israel. First stop for Antony Blinken was Saudi Arabia for a meeting with the de facto ruler Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Next, Mr Blinken is on his way to Egypt right now, followed by Qatar, Israel and the Israel-occupied West Bank. I'm joined now by Julie Norman, lecturer in politics and international relations at UCL and co-director of the UCL Centre on US Politics. A very good morning to you, Julie. Welcome back. Good morning. So why begin with Saudi? Sure. So I would say the real focus of this visit, as you noted, is going to be getting through to some kind of pause, ceasefire, truce. But the U.S. also knows they have to have other things in place if that comes about. And they do see Saudi Arabia as quite crucial in any mid to long term planning for stability, for security in the region. And by that, they're really focusing on a potential normalization deal that would essentially normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel with U.S. backing, as was done previously with other states under the Abraham Accords. This was on the table prior to October 7th. It still appears to be on the table now. Saudi Arabia is emphasizing, however, that they would need to see a pathway to a Palestinian state as part of that process moving forward. Indeed, the the words coming out following the, the meeting between uh, Blinken and Mohammed bin Salman were, in, were rather vague, weren't they? They were talking about regional coordination to achieve an enduring end to the crisis in Gaza. That's according to the State Department. And they also spoke of the urgent need to reduce regional tensions. I mean, drilling down into this, it, it there is no real 
you know specific de- defined goal of we need to cause a create a pause in Gaza and we need to talk about normalization of relations with Israel. Well, that's true. And I would say they are being a bit vague coming out of the meetings as they often are. I mean, part of the messaging was, of course, uh, just because we're coming, the U.S. is coming to the region after the strikes over the weekend, trying to say face to face to uh, partners like Saudi that they don't want to see the conflict escalated further um, and don't plan to escalate unnecessarily. On the humanitarian pause side and on the Saudi normalization, I would say this is something that um, the regional security speak is sort of referring to. Um, but because Saudi is the first uh, stop on this multi-country visit, I don't expect them to speak much more about details until later on. Remember, they're trying to get a very delicate deal passed with Hamas and Israel on board. They still need to stop in other states to lean into that, get the the pressure, get the leverage. And so right now, I would say they're holding their cards somewhat close. When you talk there about the weekend's missile strikes, firstly on uh, Iranian militia targets in Iraq and Syria, and then the two nights of strikes on, on Houthi targets in Yemen. I mean, how is the US being viewed in the region at the moment when it is trying to persuade nations that it does not wish the conflict to escalate? But the general perception is that it is getting very involved. Yes, it does seem like a bit of a catch-22. And I would say from the U.S.'s point of view and certainly from the Biden administration's, getting increasingly military involved is not something that they were really seeking. But um, for the strikes on the Houthis, I think the ongoing Houthi strikes on commercial vessels in the Red Sea uh, several weeks ago was just hitting a point that there needed to be some response from the U.S. and also the U.K.'s perspective. Um, And in terms of the strikes on Iran and uh, on Iraq and Syria, those were really in response to um, what had been over 150 different attacks on U.S. Uh, bases and troops in the region, of course, culminating with uh, with several service members killed. So the U.S. does see their strikes as counterstrikes that they're not wishing to do but feel they need to do to deter, but trying not to take action that's so um, uh, devastating as to spark a war. You asked about public opinion, though. I would say, you know, the U.S.'s... Um, Perceived full support for Israel, even if it's become more nuanced, has definitely plummeted opinion of the U.S. in the region. And the strikes are just adding to that. So from a popular opinion point of view, things do not look so good for the U.S. right now. And I think they they are aware of that as they take these measures and try and make them as as calibrated as possible, even if it doesn't seem that way to those in the region. And going to Saudi Arabia first, when, you know, Saudi is saying it needs it, it is happy to try to normalize relations with Israel. But that will be entirely dependent on Israel creating a pathway for a, for a Palestinian state, which is something that the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has has absolutely ruled out. When you begin with someone like Saudi Arabia, in the context of of what is happening with U.S. strikes on Iran-backed targets, how much harder does it make Blinken's job? Because one wonders why they've done it in this order. Yeah, so I would say I think going to Saudi first, again, partly was an acknowledgement of how things are heating up more on that side of the Middle East. And also, again, to try and get that bigger picture commitment to a long term strategy piece in place, get that affirmed before moving on to Egypt and Qatar, which are much more involved in the direct negotiations around a hostage release, around a potential ceasefire. And that's really where there, things are going to get into the nitty gritty, into the details for a deal that you know, we hope will be forthcoming uh, very soon. And so I would say trying to get those bigger picture pieces in place before then 
really leaning into what's going to be the more difficult part of the trip and then finally getting to Israel and the Palestinian territories at the end to lay it on the table. Let's talk about this more difficult part of the trip. Um, he's on his way to Egypt at the moment. What does he expect to, to happen there? Sure. So both Egypt and Qatar have been very involved in the negotiations. And this is because Israel and Hamas cannot negotiate directly. So uh, Qatar and Egypt are the sort of intermediaries with Hamas. Right now, regarding this potential deal, um, Hamas has had it and has been considering it for some days now. And my understanding is that Blinken will really be working with his Qatari and Egyptian counterparts to uh, really lean into Hamas as much as possible to see what they can do to make this deal work for Hamas, to see what Hamas is asking as counterproposals, and really get this starting to move as much as possible while he's there in the region. And and when you have that focus on um, leaning into Hamas, um, how receptive is Israel going to be to anything which comes from the Hamas point of view? Because there are so many sticking points in this proposed ceasefire, um, not least the exchange of prisoners, the duration and nature of the of, of the pause, and indeed the, the allowing humanitarian aid to get into Gaza. These are sticking points which have been around since the beginning of this of the violence. They have been, and they continue to be. Uh, so again, the length of the pause is probably the biggest one. Uh, Israel is framing this potential deal truce as a, again, a temporary pause, a temporary ceasefire. Hamas really wants it to be a permanent ceasefire and end to hostilities. So that is probably the biggest sticking point right now. The other is in regards to um, prisoners themselves. Hamas is pushing for a full release of all Palestinian prisoners and detainees who number up to 8,000. Uh, Netanyahu has said that's an absolute no-go. He'll, you know, negotiate on a um, ratio trade as they did the last time. So I think those pieces will continue to be the big ones. I think the prisoners piece, they can probably actually negotiate on that and reach a compromise. The temporary versus permanent truce is obviously a bit trickier. And I think that's where a lot of the emphasis is going to be behind these closed doors in the next few days. Because we have this domestic issue, don't we, inside Israel, insofar as the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is under pressure from both sides internally, firstly from the far right in his party who wishes to push and push and push. And there is a fresh, fresh urgency now, isn't there? Because Israeli forces are now pressing further south towards Rafah on the border with Egypt. But secondly, there are the families of the hostages who still have no word of their loved ones who are simply desperate to have them home. That's exactly right. And I would say, you know, since October 7th, the families of hostages has, uh, you know, have been extremely um, uh, um, important in motivating and pushing and advocating for ensuring that the hostages are not forgotten, that they are made a priority in this. And many really feeling that Israel's military um, strategy, their military aims were overriding the aim of just getting the hostages released. So that's been very crucial for putting pressure on from that side. But at the same time, again, um, many even further to the right of Netanyahu and his war cabinet are pushing for a much, um, a much more continued campaign in Gaza for really trying to eliminate Hamas completely. So there's a whole spread of opinions right now in Israel, um, but a lot's just going to come down to what is actually, you know, important and, and a priority for right now. And at least there's some consensus that a, at least a pause would be um, would be advantageous for for many reasons to regroup militarily, to get hostages released, um, and of course from the Palestinian side to get much aided need to Gaza and to try and prevent what might be an extremely bloody siege on Rafah. Finally, um, Julie, the 
the presence of Antony Blinken in the Middle East, the fifth visit since the uh, Hamas attack on Israel on the 7th of October, is his presence seen as a, a good and necessary thing? I would say so. The U.S. at least puts a lot behind this one-to-one face-to-face diplomacy, and it seems that partners in the region do also. It certainly matters a lot with the U.S.'s relationship to Israel when the U.S., um, when either Blinken or Biden is there in person. And I would say for allies in the region, too, it shows a level of commitment, a level of seriousness, and quite honestly, a level of um, sort of mutual respect when Blinken is there directly pushing and not just, you know, on the phone or whatever from Washington. So this seems Seems like rather um, tireless diplomacy. I would say, in some way, it is these um, these multi-trip, uh, multi-country tours that he is doing. But this shuttle diplomacy is often what it really comes down to when we do see a breakthrough. Julie Norman, thank you as ever for joining us on the Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. here in London. Let's head straight to Istanbul to have a look at today's newspapers. I'm delighted to say that joining me down the line is Ruth Michelson. Good morning. How's Istanbul looking today? Uh, Istanbul's looking sunny. Unfortunately, I'm not exactly bringing you wonderful news from this part of the world. But uh, um, Don't worry about that. Just tell tell us what is happening at all, because there's a story in the New York Times that you wanted to draw our attention to, which slots in quite neatly with what we've just been talking about, which is the internal problems that Benjamin Netanyahu is facing from within his government in terms of the way that he is handling the Israeli response to the Hamas attack. But the story is coming from the New York Times. Absolutely. I mean, stories rippling across the uh, the media on this. I mean, the New York Times, starting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel is on his on his last legs, it is widely believed, and adding that he's likely forced to uh, he will likely be forced out of office once the war ends. Um, talking about his um, unpopularity in the opinion polls and the New York Times laying out a series of potential scenarios for how he would be forced out, including his coalition collapsing. That's number one. Um, Vote of no confidence, um, people quitting his unity government, um, or also particularly the renewal of anti-Netanyahu demonstrations that were happening um, before the 7th of October. Um, And I mean, interesting quote here that uh, there's a lot of reporting in reference to the idea that Netanyahu is this kind of Teflon candidate. We're seeing this in a very interesting piece in the Financial Times as well. Um, But somebody just before we get to that, a columnist for Yeriath Aharonov talking to the New York Times um, saying, you know, I don't rule out that Netanyahu will win. And he says, even against President Biden, suggesting you know, who Netanyahu feels uh, he's running against. Um, lots of reporting in response to an uh, an interview given by um, a member of Netanyahu's government, uh, the National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir, um, who gave some rather incendiary comments to the Wall Street Journal that we're seeing ripple across um, all of the media, set off quite a firestorm in Israel, um, and reporting about this, where Netanyahu essentially responded to the comments saying, you know, I'm the one in charge, I'm the one in charge of our relationship with the United States. It's a complicated um, path, but the, the four paths that the New York Times article um, focuses on, and it, it gives an excellent sort of yeah, exit scenario for each for each um, case for, for Benjamin Netanyahu. One thing that it does fo- focus on is the power of um, civil protest, that we have to remember that before 
Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th, there had been a long-running civic movement against proposed um, changes to the judiciary in, uh, in Israel and that people were angry already. Absolutely. Um, people were angry already. And then there's also the fact that the protest, uh, excuse me, sorry, the attack on the on the 7th of October um, really undermined Netanyahu's reputation as so-called Mr. Security. Um, and that going into an election, now that we're seeing more discussions about an election, this is reporting in the FT, um, the opposition leader called on Netanyahu to set a date. Um, there's a former Netanyahu advisor telling the FT, there's no doubt that everyone is getting ready, really everybody, um, that, you know, that kind of public sentiment that we saw during the protests combined with the anger about the security failures that happened on the 7th of October. Um, and now discussions about how Netanyahu is handling um, ret the return of Israeli hostages, how he's handling security policy more broadly, all of these would be factors in an upcoming vote. Um, the FT also mentions that, you know, the polls would show that this would be a change election, that Netanyahu's Likud party would um, lose quite a large number of its seats. Um, but at the same time, again, more of this reporting that, you know, you can't ever really count out Netanyahu as widely disliked as he is from many, many corners of the government and former, you know, former and current members of the military. Um, there's interesting quote in the FT, you know, for anyone else, the 7th of October would be the end of the road. But this is Bibi, uh, reference to Netanyahu's nickname. Let's move on to a story uh, that we were covering yesterday on the, the Globalist, which was a parliament's parliamentary session in uh, Hungary, which was attempting to ratify the bid by uh, Sweden to join NATO. Um, but unfortunately, Viktor Orban and his party didn't turn up. Yes, this was meant to be the end of 18 months of delays that, um, you know, as the Associated Press points out in their reporting, have angered Hungary's allies. I think that's probably putting it mildly, um, where it was meant to be uh, a vote where, as you say, Viktor Orban's party, which, again, as the AP uh, points out, holds an absolute majority in parliament, meant to show up and vote on Sweden's accession to NATO and simply did not show up, even though uh, the session was supported by six opposition parties. So this is basically prolonging um, this potential accession for you know, very, very unclear um, reasons. Um, diplomats in Budapest talking to The Guardian, um, talking about growing frustration and disappointment and saying, you know, Hungary had promised that it wouldn't be the last and that promise has been broken. Um, just talking about the, you know, the fact that you're in Istanbul um, and last week, it was only, what, 10 days ago since um, Ankara ratified the decision to, to allow Sweden to uh, apply to NATO. I mean, what has been the, the sort of has there been a sort of a change in attitude or a change in approach now that Turkey has climbed, you know, has climbed on board? I mean, I think we saw that the timing of the vote as much as um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, um, wanted to say that this was all down to parliament, um, that this was a the vote timing in Turkey was something that was convenient to Erdogan. And that was also because there have been long running discussions about um 
essentially how Turkey might be able to extract concessions from Sweden and also from the United States um, before it could uh, have, you know, before this vote would be held. And we saw that it seemed, you know, Turkey seemed to get uh, much of what it wanted. And so the vote uh, rather quietly went ahead. And so now this pressure is on Hungary. Uh, Ruth, let's move on to, it's now an annivers- the, uh, the first anniversary since the enormous, uh, enormous earthquakes in Turkey and northwestern Syria. Um, it mustn't be forgotten that, what, 60,000 people lost their lives. But for those who did survive, what is life like now? Right, so, I mean, an absolutely awful anniversary today um, on the minds of, I would say, a lot of people here, myself included, that there were exactly, as you say, 60,000 people a year ago who went to bed and never woke up, uh, killed in their sleep by um, two powerful earthquakes and then a third a week later um, in southeastern Turkey affecting northern Syria. Lots of reporting, um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, myself in The Guardian, Uh, talking to people across southeastern Turkey and in northern Syria about what life is like for them now. I mean, mention in the Washington Post of someone who is still searching for um, her 25-year-old son who was missing, um, interviews with uh, Syrian refugees here in Turkey, just saying, you know, life after the earthquakes has only gotten more challenging, who are still living in a tent. Um, Some rather beautiful, painful reporting in the, the New York Times following one family uh, that they saw being pulled out of a house in Gaziantep for an entire year. Um, let's move on to uh, another story as well that um, is <laughs> making a bit of a sea change here. Um, but there is quite a lot of coverage of the uh, US Transportation Secretary has had to issue a warning to drivers um, after someone driving a Tesla um, you know, that perhaps not in itself a problem. Um, but is the driver is wearing the Vision Pro headset, which gives you augmented reality. I mean, one the mind boggles, frankly. <laughs> yes, and very much so. I mean, the fact that the US Transportation Secretary um, had to respond to this, I think, is, you know, is, is quite telling, right? Um, I mean, you know, CBS mentioning that this video, which has been viewed apparently over 24 million times, is sounding alarm bells at the highest levels of the US Department of Transportation. Um, a driver driving a, a Tesla, which apparently has a series of um, autopilot, enhanced autopilot features while wearing this headset. Um, but Pete Buttigieg, the US Secretary of Transportation, reminding people that these settings do not mean the vehicles are fully autonomous. Um, and so the um, all of these driving systems require the human driver to be in control and fully engaged in the driving task at all times. In other words, don't put on this newly released Apple headset, no matter what either of these companies may tell you, and drive a car. Yes, please drive your car properly. Ruth Michelson in Istanbul, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come, we head to Singapore to get the headlines. That's right, Emma. I've got some good news for Singapore's Changi Airport. The latest on an evolving spat between two of the Philippines' big political families and why Thailand's National Postal Service is turning to retail. That's all coming up later on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. So 
7.23 here in London now. The UK's former Prime Minister Liz Truss may only have lasted a record-breaking short time in office, just 49 days from election to departure. But being booted out hasn't stopped her. Ms Truss is one of the faces of a new political movement bringing together some of the harder elements of the right wing in the Conservatives. The launch of what's called PopCon takes place this morning, but it's arguably the longer-term post-election reshaping of the Conservative Party that this group has its sights on. I'm joined now in the studio by Vincent McAvinney, political journalist and regular Monocle Radio contributor. Good morning, Vinny. Good morning, Emma. So, so the, what I want to draw everybody's attention to is uh, something that's quite hard to describe on the internet, uh, on, the, on the radio, but there's a, there's a picture in the Times of uh, Liz Truss trying to launch her new movement by saying standing room only. Uh, they've set the launch in a broom cupboard with about five hardcore hardline Tories, one of whom appears to be drinking bleach. And so a Henry the Hoover, don't forget, in the corner. Though. Looking rather yeah. sceptical. Mm. We can't remember, we can't ever, ever leave out Henry the Hoover. The reason is, is he, that is obviously painting an entirely ridiculous position of something which actually in the, in the, in the real world is pretty dangerous. Oh, to have the self-belief and self-confidence <laughs> of Liz Trust, Britain's shortest-serving Prime Minister who crashed the economy and tanked the pound and still thinks that people want to hear from her. I mean, what we're getting now is the full fracture of the Conservative Party. It was said, you know, when they came into office back in 2010 that Cameron had united them. We saw, though, there was still that fault line uh, when it came to the European Union. But this is a party that is now smashed uh, into, as I understand it now, with PopCon today, six separate groups. You've got the European Research Group, the New Conservatives, the Common Sense Group, the Northern Research Group, the Conservative Growth Group. These are basically WhatsApp groups of Conservative MPs just trying to fight out uh, who will take over once Rishi Sunak loses the next election, which by all indicators he will do. Uh, Some of them trying to punt things into the manifesto coming up. But this is effectively again, particularly for Liz Truss, her trying to clean up the legacy of her disastrous 49 days when, you know, she almost she brought the pound to almost parity with the dollar. She sent mortgage rates spiking, uh, you know, I can give my own, for example, from 1.4% to 5.8%. Uh, and she's left a huge black hole, estimated to be about £30 billion, which is half of the fiscal hole in Treasury accounts that the current administration, Jeremy Hunt, who she had to appoint to save her, uh, has had to deal with. Indeed. I mean, these are still things that the British people experience every day. I mean, we are, we, everybody, think, everybody, everybody felt it. So, what is it that Liz Truss believes and this small group of people in the broom cupboard, thank you, Times for the Best Cartoon, they believe is actually the right thing to do because evidence would suggest plentifully otherwise. Well, on that point, really, you know, this is one of the arguments why some in Downing Street think that Rishi Sunak should be moving quicker with an election. I think if he knew, thought he had any chance, he might do that. But he's just trying to get past the two-year mark for his LinkedIn profile for the rest of his life. But essentially, every month, you're getting tens of thousands of people falling off historically low interest rates onto these still high rates. And the Bank of England last week, some of the Monetary Committee were talking about putting them up still further. They held them where they were. Uh, but that is making Liz Truss ever more unpopular. And I can give you the breakdown. In January, a Savannah poll uh, found that 65% of people have an unfavourable view of Liz Truss. Uh, and this is, you know, 18 months on from her time in office. Now, to give you a, a comparison, there were 11% favourable. So that means she has net favourability of minus 54. Rishi Sunak, the current Prime Minister, is only on minus 27. 
Keir Starmer is on minus eight. And Boris Johnson, when he left office, was on minus 38. And she's on minus 54 and thinks she's the voice that British people want to hear. You know, some of these policies, they might may seem popular. She said that she'll, you know, quote, restore democratic accountability and deliver these popular conservative policies. Uh, and all we've sort of heard so far is tough on immigration. Well, the government's been banging that drum for much of the last decade. So curious to see what she says differently. Tough on China. I mean, is that really a vote winner in seats that they need to hang on to in the red wall? Uh, and tax cuts. Now, it's her unfunded tax tax cuts, which sent the economy into a tailspin and prompted warnings from everyone from Joe Biden to the IMF. So, you know, whether or not these ideas are popular or not, she has proved herself to be a pretty terrible saleswoman because it was the delivery she liked to claim that got it all wrong. Are the Conservatives, are, are this group looking further ahead, though? I mean, the expectation is that the Conservatives will lose, lose the next election. It will require a quite astonishing change of fortunes for Rishi Sunak and the current Conservatives to to retain any kind of sense of popularity. So is this the thought that actually this trust is saying, OK, we will form this group, we will watch Rishi Sunak crash and burn, and we will be there to mop up the debris and create a new, much more hardline Conservative Party in line with the movement to populism, which is, which, you know, it is a huge one globally. Definitely. But I think it's, again, this deluded self-belief of this trust that if she thinks, you know, maybe there's a case of she sits behind and pulls the puppet strings and gets behind someone. But if she thinks she's the face of it that the British public will get behind, she is still badly mistaken. I think it shows that she's still completely, you know, there was always a bit of a strange thing with this trust. Someone I've interviewed for, I think you probably have done at some point. Uh, There was a sort of strange sort of glint behind the eyes, a sort of lack of real... Uh, awareness of self and you know if she she's she's been doing sort of random things since she left office uh and one of the things that she did was sort of about two months out she came back and did an interview sort of interjecting in politics and the question was asked of her like why you why you why are you back now what, what, you know, as if like the public had been longing for her and missing her because she interpreted it as like, well, I've had to take some time away, but now I'm back. And the question was, no, why are you not disappearing for a long time because of what you did? So, you know, I think there is definitely going to be a battle. I think Suella Bravman probably is more the lead contender for reshaping the Conservative Party after election. I think she will likely be their version of Jeremy Corbyn and pull the party further to the right. Uh, and probably Labour will be quite happy with that because, yes, whilst it might be kind of toxic in the public discord, uh, it'll make them yet more unelectable. While uh, you are here, uh, Vinny, I think it would probably be appropriate to touch on the news that broke uh, yesterday, which is uh, the King's diagnosis uh, with cancer. Um, one of the things that it does is it absolutely takes him away from the world stage mm. until he is better. Yeah. Um, there are mentions already that the Australians are, are sending, obviously, the enormous sympathy to, to the family. Um, but they're also saying, well, we were expecting a, a big state visit later on this year. I mean, the departure of, of King Charles, what, 17 months after after actually acceding to, succeeding to the throne, um, what does it do for the for the British image on the world stage? 
Well, it's interesting because there are a couple of problems with this. Uh, in some ways, the palace has moved to being more open. Uh, you know, last week telling us about him getting that treatment for an enlarged prostate uh, because they thought it would encourage men. We know I'm particularly bad at sort of getting these things checked out to go and check it out. But it's a really interesting piece, uh, in, you know, in the Times this morning saying palace returns to the opaque old playbook uh, and actually saying that they've sort of created a vacuum of guessing what it is and how severe it is, which I think is, is going to go on. Um, what is clear is that we maybe need to think about the structural system a bit better because whilst the king is pulling back from public duties, other members will have to step up. So his wife, Camilla, uh, Prince William, we know that Princess uh, Kate is out until effectively beyond Easter because she's recovering from health. You've got uh, Prince Edward and and, uh, Princess Sophie. Um, But... In the official kind of running of things, how things can go, the king is still going to do the red boxes, sign new laws in and meet the prime minister every week. Uh, But he's going to cut down on public contact in part because his immune system might be struggling. So there's a genuine medical reason for that. But if at some point he does become incapacitated for a period, then it falls to councillors of state that can be uh, delegated the responsibilities under the constitution to carry out for King Charles. Now, as it stands, that list is Queen Camilla. If you'd said that to someone in the 90s, they would have, you know, think you'd gone mad that she's the most (laughs) senior royal at the moment. Uh, Prince William... Princess Anne and Prince Edward and Princess Beatrice, the two who are currently in that category as well, but the palace have made clear will not be called up, are Prince Harry, who we expect to return from California in the next few days, and the Duke of York. And I think it shows that maybe the, the as Charles, you know, a couple of years ago, he wanted this slimmed down monarchy. He wanted it to be a core six, as he saw it, which was himself, Camilla, William and Kate, Harry and Meghan. Uh, well, that dynamic has really changed. And Princess Anne herself said in a coronation documentary over Christmas that the cupboard is now a bit thinner on people to do stuff and that some of them feel that they've been taking on too much because of the burden of not having enough frontline members anymore. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not this sort of creates a recalculation where they think we actually need more of a wider team uh, to keep this show on the road. Vincent McAvinney, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. The time here in London is 7.33am. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A quick look now at what else we're keeping an eye on today. Squad leaders have expressed their support for the UK's King Charles after he was diagnosed with cancer. The US President Joe Biden said he's concerned about King Charles's cancer diagnosis and hopes to speak to him soon. The Australian Prime Minister has said his country's citizens are thinking of the King and his family, with his diagnosis now throwing into doubt a planned visit there later this year. Another cargo ship has been damaged in an attack by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. The United Kingdom Maritime Trade Operations Agency and the British maritime security firm Ambre said a British-registered vessel was hit using a drone after a small boat was spotted nearby. Three people have died after a powerful storm caused flooding and power cuts in California. The state's governor has called a state of emergency in eight counties. And the former US President Donald Trump has said he wants to debate the current president, Joe Biden, immediately. We should debate for the good of the country, Mr Trump told a radio show. Mr Trump has refused to debate any of his rivals for the Republican nomination. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
Now, the 62nd edition of the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair has come to a close, attracting designers, brands and buyers from all over the world. Also in attendance have been government officials and trading partners making connections with the big players from the world of fashion. Monocle's Tom Webb was there and sat down with Valeria Naleto, who's the CEO of Australia-Brazil's Chamber of Commerce, and talked to her about her presence at the fair. I representing the Australia-Brazil Chamber of Commerce. I am originally from Brazil, but I have been in Australia for almost 20 years and the Honorary Consul for Brazil in Queensland, in Australia, and a CEO of the Australia-Brazil Chamber and Head of Brazil Week. So why is the Chamber of Commerce in, interested in the International Fashion Fair? What has drawn you here? <laughs> That's a fantastic question, It Bob. is, isn't it? That's yeah. what we do here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So part of uh, Brazil Week, which I'll talk more a bit later, but part of Brazil Week is the Fashion Day. So uh, we started two years ago in actually in the first edition of our Fashion Day. We had some very interesting guests. We were uh, showcasing the Brazilian fashion in Australia, but also a couple of uh, Australian uh, brands. But in our first event, we had two special guests. We had Brazilian actor, renowned Brazilian actor Nelson Freitas, and we had Mr. Viking Ragnar Rothbrook himself, Travis Fimmel. Lucky you. I know, I know. We have to talk about President Lula da Silva in a very neutral way. How has he changed Brazil's relationship with Australia, or has he maintained a status quo? I'd say that because both leaders, uh, Lula and Albanese, have embraced the or embraced the green energy shift, I think there's. Um, I think uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of the government at all, uh, but they they have both embraced the, the changes and they are both working towards implementing those changes. And um, Brazil is hosting the the G20 this year. And I believe we will see a lot more talk and a lot more collaboration between our two countries. And and Lula, of course, uh, heading those those G20 conversations will will definitely play a huge part and I think will grow the relationship between the two countries. Now, the green shift is a very expensive transition, no matter who you are or what country you are. How are Australia and Brazil working together in that transition? Sure. So, well, both countries, again, recognise the importance of the shift. Brazil is a world leader in clean energy. And Australia is investing a lot in new ways and in wind and including actually some collaboration with Denmark. But you see, I, I believe that the, the G20 this year will bring a lot more collaboration between the two countries. And also Brazil is hosting the COP next year in Belém, in Pará, and Australia is bidding f- to host COP Um, the following year. So I think it will be interesting to see what comes out of G20 this year and what happens at COP next year. And if Australia gets COP, then uh, it will be a nice kind of a straight uh, three-year opportunity for the growth uh, contribution collaboration between our two countries. 
Now, hosting COP is interesting, but it's not nearly as interesting as hosting Brazil Week. Now, you mentioned it earlier. What is Brazil Week? Why was 2023 so big? And why will this year be even bigger? Oh, I love your question. Uh, Brazil Week started two year, uh, three years ago. And actually, I got the idea from the Germans. So I always make sure that I give the Germans the credit. Michael Roseman, the Honorary Consul for Germany in Queensland, started German Week a few uh, years ago. And after attending one of the German Week events, um, I decided that we had to do the same for Brazil. Michael was a great mentor, the, the Honorary Consul for Germany. And we did. We launched the first Brazil Week in 2022 when we celebrated 200 years of independence from Portugal. And uh, so that first e uh, edition of Brazil Week, we only have held events in Queensland because that's where I'm based. Um, but we had a level of e events, including fashion. That's when we had the, the, the attendance of those celebrities I mentioned before. But um, last year, we included three events in Sydney, including a fashion day in Sydney as well. And that was Valeria Naleta speaking to Monocle's Tom Webb there. You're listening to Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's at 12.41 in Islamabad, 7.41am here in London. Now, Pakistan becomes the latest nation this week to join the long list of countries holding elections in 2024. The run-up to the election has been dominated for months by challenges by the former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who currently languishes in jail, unable to take part. Well, joining me now to look ahead to what's happening this week is Farhan Bakari, Pakistan correspondent for the Financial Times in Islamabad. A uh, very good afternoon to you, Farhan. Yes, good afternoon. So just explain what's up for grabs on Thursday. Uh, the focus uh, for the outside world is uh, primarily on Imran Khan and the way that his uh, party, uh, the Pakistan Tariqinsaf, widely known as PTI, has been sidelined. Um, the PTI claims that many of its uh, 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 candidates are even uh, have even been sent to jail or detained in police custody or just not able to file their nomination papers. Um, and even the famous um, uh, party symbol, a cricket bat, a cricket bat has been removed uh, by the Election Commission of Pakistan. So um, every candidate for uh, Imran Khan is uh, contesting on a different symbol. So some are carrying uh, a symbol like a kettle, Others are carrying other symbols, domestic appliances, things like that. And this has caused a lot of confusion, um, effectively mayhem within the party. 
they're just not able to uh, to contest as a party would normally do under any other elections. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister who was ousted in 2017 on a corruption charge, is back and is widely expected to uh, to win this election, become the next prime minister of Pakistan. But given Pakistan's uh, uh, major economic challenges, uh, this is not going to be a road to stability either for the country or the government um, after the elections take place. So tell us a little bit more about in the absence of Imran Khan. I mean, you, you wrote about this in the last couple of days in the Financial Times, saying that actually if Imran Khan were out of jail, he would be winning by an absolute landslide. What remains, therefore, of a democratic process uh, when you have the main player effectively taken from the field? Um, and then you have political dynasties, of which you speak, who seem to be coming back to, to, rule, to rule again. That's true. And that is where uh, there are lots of questions which have been raised on this, uh, on this entire uh, process and has given validity to to the PTI's um, uh, objections to the way this this process has taken place. Um, There are already major questions on this election, even though it's uh, two days away. Um, But people are asking questions over how uh, legitimate this, uh, this election or electoral process can be counted. And as a result, you mentioned the, the parlous state that the Pakistani economy is in at the moment. Um, there's widespread poverty, hunger and anger. And, and indeed, there's political and, and, and instability as well with uh, a surge in terrorist attacks by um, militant Islamist groups. I mean, going into Thursday, what is the mood in Pakistan? Uh, people are very apprehensive on the streets of Pakistan. Many people that I've interviewed are just very uncertain about the future. Um, and the line that's come from Nawaz Sharif and even the interim government, which is overseeing these elections, that Pakistan will go towards stability. Uh, on the streets of Pakistan, that is a message which is really not sinking in. Uh, people are very worried about uh, about the future of this country. Farhan, very quickly, um, the interna- where does this leave Pakistan? I mean, when we have this election on Thursday and you have internal uncertainty, the, it's the fifth most populous nation on earth. I mean, wh- where does this leave the country in the region and globally? That's a tough one to answer um, uh, with any certainty. But I, I guess the one <clears throat> issue is that Pakistan's challenges, problems, especially the economic problems, will not go away with the elections and uh, uh, under a different set of circumstances a government carrying forward with uh, a, a mandate um, a mandate that uh, represents uh, some form of a majority of the population would have then been able to uh, uh, carry its uh, its mandate forward and also uh, to be able to to put in place some uh, tough, harsh uh, reforms. Pakistan will need new austerity measures uh, because there's an IMF program which runs out in April, and the expectation is that uh, soon afterwards Pakistan will need another IMF program for the next two, three years um, to be able to uh, 
to to keep itself afloat on foreign payments. Otherwise, there's a very definite danger of um, returning to a near default situation as Pakistan witnessed last year. Farhan Bakari, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Islamabad. You're listening to Monaco Radio. Let's head now to Singapore. Monocle's associate producer Lillian Fawcett joins me on the line to talk about Changi Airport. A very good afternoon to you, Lillian. Good afternoon, Emma. Good to be with you. So good news for Singapore. Changi expected to come back to its pre-COVID passenger numbers this year. I mean, a busy airport as it stands. Yes, exactly. So great news for the airport, but also for the city state as a whole. We heard the transport minister say this week, as he, as you said, that he expects the famous Changi Airport to return to pre-pandemic visitor numbers. This comes back off the back of some really positive numbers from 2023, which represented 86% of pre-COVID levels. And a big part of that is being driven by journeys from China, which obviously was one of the last countries to relax relax its travel restrictions after COVID. We also saw in 2023 some airlines uh, add routes through Changi, places like TUI UK and Air Macau. And this is really important for for Singapore Airport um, because obviously there are lots of people who come and visit Singapore, but many of the people who transit through the airport are doing just that. They're transiting. And at its peak, there were 55,000 people a day transiting through Singapore airport. And so obviously this means they're not coming into Singapore and spending their money here, as would be ideal. But it does bring money into the city nonetheless. And also, I will say it's good for Singapore's soft power. You know, it's a small country, but the airline, which is one of the most respected in the world, and also the airport are some of the big ways that people come into contact with Singapore as a brand, if even if they're not visiting the city itself. And it doesn't, I suppose, have the same kind of diplomatic or soft power clout as some places, perhaps in Europe. So it's a really useful tool for that as well. So, And, and it's a, that interesting thing that if you cement it as, a, as, as an international transport hub, that is one thing. But you mentioned that the number of visitors coming in, I mean, the international visitor arrivals doubled last year um, and as you say it's China but it's also Indonesia and Malaysia coming in as well I mean that's that's 71% of those who came in 2019 I mean how is Singapore um, you know coping with this this lovely rapid expansion well I mean it's expansion of course but it's expansion on much lowered numbers during the pandemic as you say there were 58 million people uh, visiting Changi airport last year so Singapore is ready for them you know the infrastructure here really is fantastic uh, the MRT is is uh, is an excellent piece of kind of travel infrastructure and actually they are prepared for even more flights this upcoming weekend they've added 2500 additional international flights for the Chinese New Year, which is, of course, a big holiday here. And visitors and travellers from, again, China can enjoy visa-free travel as part of a new um, agreement with the Chinese government. So they're prepared for and they're welcoming plenty more visitors here in Singapore. Lillian, what other stories are you picking up in the region? Well, let's go to the Philippines now, where two of the country's biggest political dynastic families, the Marcoses and the Dutertes, have well and truly fallen out. So the big players are President 
Ferdinand Marcos Jr. He's, of course, the son of the former dictator Ferdinand Marcos, and he's been trading some pretty stern words, to put it politely, with his predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte. Last week, there was even this kind of public war of words, all quite bizarre, where Marcos accused Duterte of being a drug addict. Um, This, I'm sure, will have smarted quite a bit because, of course, a big part of Duterte's uh, domestic policy when he was in power was this very controversial war on drugs. Now, this was all a response to Duterte's son, who himself is a city mayor, calling on Marcos to resign. And all of this is further complicated by the fact that the former president Duterte's daughter, Sarah, is currently Marcos's vice president. And now there are reports that their unity, their kind of alliance, which really brought them into power in a landslide win in 2022, is very much fraying at the scenes. Supposedly, some MPs are planning for her to be removed. So there are many different elements to this ongoing drama. And what damage is it actually doing to the Philippines um, to have this such a such a public spat at the top? Well, certainly there have definitely been warnings that this could be bad for political stability in the Philippines. And this comes at a time when it's going through ongoing spats itself with China over the South China Sea. That's actually another issue that the Marcoses and the Duterte's disagree on. Marcos is very much pivoting to the US, uh, forging stronger defense ties with Washington. Duterte was moving more towards China during his time in office. And again, this is just ramping up even further. This week, uh, sowing uncertainty and, uh, I suppose, distrust maybe in in politicians because Duterte has even said that his uh, home region, which is an area in the south of the Philippines called Mindanao, should be separated from the Philippines if uh, Duterte, sorry, if Marcos uh, plows forward with the constitutional reforms, which were really at the source of this big disagreement and which he accuses Marcos of trying to extend his hold on power through these reforms, just like Marcos's father did. And as you can imagine, this received a huge backlash with um, his Marcos's national security advisor saying that, you know, if any attempts to secede from the rest of the Philippines would be met with a really firm response. Let's move to a story in Thailand, uh, where I think a, a lot of countries are experiencing a decline in their national postal service, not least because of private delivery firms um, delivering all the parcels from the likes of Amazon. Um, not so in Thailand. They're going in completely the opposite direction, strengthening and also moving into retail. You're exactly right. Yeah. And I mean, this is definitely something, for example, that we see in the UK with the Postal Service considering, you know, dropping down the number of days that it actually delivers post. Whereas in Thailand, it's state run logistics service Thailand Post, uh, which, as you say, is facing competition, rising costs, more parcels as opposed to letters. Its chief executive has said today that the company wants 30 percent of its revenues to come from retail within just the next three years. That will be up from five percent now. How's it doing this? Well, it's moved into food and beverages. They've launched a drinking water brand, a rice brand even. And now they're looking at energy drinks. They're even talking about starting a virtual banking service. So really diversifying as a way of staying competitive with those private providers. Lillian Fawcett, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Singapore. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio.
Finally, to the Netherlands, where on average 18 people drown each year in one of Amsterdam's 165 canals. Many of these victims are young men believed to have fallen to their deaths while seemingly under the influence. Well, to combat this program, uh, the problem, the city's undertaking a major renovation to make it easier for people who fall into the water to get out. Um, someone who's written about this uh, is Shenai Bostash, who's joining me on the line from Amsterdam. A very good morning to you, Shenai. Morning. So um, this, these canals, beautiful, cold and deadly is how you've described them. Absolutely. They really are. And actually, you also don't want to know what's in them because they're, although they're the cleanest they've ever been in their history, they're quite dirty as well. So tell us what's going wrong here. I mean, this is a, a thing that appears to be particularly a problem for international visitors and mostly in particular men. Yes, The canal structure started off, Amsterdam was built around its canals and they were a place for transport. So they had to be open so that you could load and unload and get things in and out of houses. So they've always been kind of open. And if you're an Amsterdammer, you've grown up and you've known this. And in the past, well, you probably couldn't swim anyway. So if you fell in the river, that was you anyway. Um, But particularly foreign people coming here now may not be very well aware of the risk. They're also very high walled. So unlike somewhere else, if you fall in, there's not a very good way to get out. There's a lot of canal boats frustrating your your entry and exit point. Um, and now they're starting to build in some some more ladders. But even then, you do actually have to know, OK, there will be a ladder somewhere. I need to get myself to the side and pull my way to to there to, in order to get out. But, I mean, the, the issue is, is, is trying to stop people from falling in in the first place, not just getting them able to, you know, helping them to get out again afterwards. And one of the main problems is that the, the people who are falling in are often drunk. And, um, you know, the, the, this is a wider issue for Amsterdam, isn't it? Well, it is. It's certainly extremely expensive for the fire brigade rescue service to be coming out 200 times a year and and mostly rescuing people. Um, Some people might be, we we have some homeless people drinking on the street. Some people might be falling in in that way. Yes, there does seem to be a problem with uh, men who are under the influence thinking, oh, I just need to relieve myself. We've got terrible provision of public toilets in Amsterdam and thinking, oh, I'll just go in the canal. And there actually does seem to be a a biological process that leaves you more likely to perhaps tumble over, but also along all the Amsterdam canals in order to stop the the cars rolling in, because cars are parked right up to the canals. We've got this little car rail, which is the perfect height for tripping over if you don't know it's there or you've forgotten it's there. So there's kind of an inbuilt kind of hazard. Just looking at the way that Amsterdam is dealing with this, I mean, there's a thought to actually warn foreign tourists about the dangers. There's a thought to warn tourists and everyone, in fact, of the dangers. The canals might look fun, particularly in the red light district, but don't go for a swim in there and don't mess around with it. Um, Councillors are wondering if you could maybe learn from other places like Galway or Bristol um, in the high risk areas. So Galway's got this fantastic system they're trying at the moment with infrared cameras that can detect if there's a body in the water from the temperature difference. Um, That's in a particular place of high suicide risk. Um, so, so that's that's quite a new thing in Galway, and other places have put in more fencing along canals or um, signs, warnings. Don't be a statistic. I think that's one from the UK that they're looking at here. But there's also a brigade that says, well, we shouldn't fence our canals because of the aesthetic appeal, and we're a world heritage site. And goodness me, that would look so ugly. And also, people have been falling in since the Middle Ages. 
they have been dying since the Middle Ages. That's not necessarily the, the reason to uh, not warn them, but also traumatic and expensive. And uh, uh, it, it takes days to find bodies sometimes. There was an Amsterdamer who fell in and really shocked the city la- last year. It's, there's not, the inquest has not happened, but um, people were really, really horrified. Shanae Boschat in Amsterdam very much upright and not in the canal. Thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Chris Chermak, Tom Webb and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager was Christy O'Grady with editing assistance from Sarah Nicholl. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. Chris Chermak is your host for that. And The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.